here I am, this like white woman from North Carolina, parachuting in to do research, speaking to a woman who's been in a Bhutanese refugee camp for two decades. Our lives have nothing in common. And yet, as she shares her story, and her grandchildren are running around, and there's a chicken uh, like coming there, and they're trying to serve me tang, and she's narrating the story, the most unbelievable human connection is, is forged. And I think for me, it's that moment that has led me to continually do this work. Prison Cells Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Craig. And with us, as usual, is Tank Johnson. Tank, how are you doing today? Doing good, doing good. Great. We're lucky to have with us for the second week in a row an intern that's working with Abolish Private Prisons doing some very interesting data research for us, Ali Hakala. Ali, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And John, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce our special guest this week, uh, John Dacey, Executive Director of Abolish Private Prisons. John, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Staying cool indoors in Phoenix at this time of year. Um, and I, it's my pleasure to get to introduce uh, Suzanne Shanahan, the Executive Director of the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame. Um, I will... Uh, let Suzanne talk a lot more about herself, but generally, uh, Suzanne has a Harvard and, and Stanford education, uh, worked at the University of Dublin, and for 24 years, I believe, at Duke University, where she founded a refugee project and um, has worked in her career with refugees, people who were forcibly relocated in East Africa, the Middle East, and the United States, and has also worked with victims of child sex trafficking. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. It's wonderful to be here with you all. Suzanne, I wanted to talk first. Um, you know, the genesis of this podcast was John's uh, work founding Abolish Private Prisons. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about what privatization means to people who are in prison is the dehumanization aspect of it. And as I was looking through your work and all of the stuff that you've been able to accomplish over the last you know, multiple decades, I thought that that theme might resonate with you because it, it, it strikes me that the dehumanization aspect of it is also core to some of the trafficking work that you do. Is that, is that sound about right? Yeah, I would say, um, Dehumanization is really at the center of um, the experience of being displaced and or trafficked. Um, and I, I think that for many folks, um, they understand that experience to be one of significant trauma, and it is, but I think the 
dehumanization dimension of it that tends to be ongoing um, once people find safety, once people are survivors of trafficking is one of the most significant challenges they face moving forward. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the research that has been done into the, the human mind and experience, we're seeing the, the ongoing effects of trauma that don't resolve immediately, right? I think you have this understanding of a situation and somebody is rescued from that situation or the situation resolves itself and then they're transplanted back into what we might call real life or something. But that trauma is something that they carry with them forever. Yeah, I think they carry it with them forever. Um, I think they also um, experience um, the process of recovery very differently oftentimes in that um, persons, um, so refugees, for example, who find safety uh, on average spend then 19 years in a refugee camp uh, where their agency is fundamentally undermined, where the notion of human flourishing is simply not possible. And under those conditions, that initial trauma is, of course, always present, but there's an additive trauma of uh, what it means not to be able to move forward in one's life. And I think the same experience um, obtains with many victims of domestic child sex trafficking in that they have an initial traumatic experience, but there is ongoing trauma that's associated with um, the lack of resources, um, the inability to uh, find support for the kinds of needs that they might have moving forward. And so I think for both refugees and victims of trafficking, it's both the initial trauma, but also how systems um, and supports continue to create kind of exacerbating tensions that for many people are described as worse than the original trauma. Yeah, I, that's, uh, I, it's maybe a little bit hard to reconcile with the, the uh, visceral experience of the trauma itself. But those rebounding and additive things, I think, are something that doesn't have the, the visceral impact and maybe are, are not as easy to understand for observers of the experience, but you know, it's, it's felt so personally to those people. Yeah, I think when you, right, if, if you're someone who um, has, has escaped violence in your homeland, uh, found safety somewhere else, and then realized, oh, I can't work, I can't go to school, I'm reliant on food rations that aren't in my natural diet. Um, my children have the needs based on their trauma and there's no one to address those. Um, there's no information about how long you're going to stay. Uh, there's no information about when and if this condition will ever get better. And so that liminal state really is quite uh, traumatic and overwhelming and a source of immense anxiety, stress, depression, etc. Right. And I think... In, in my uh, you know, hurry to talk about the parallels with abolished private prisons and the work that we've done, I think I maybe didn't give you a chance to talk about what your actual work has been, and we sort of jumped right into the theory. So maybe you can explain a little bit about, uh, and, and it's, I see John laughing, because jumping right into the theory is something that I've been accused of a lot. So what, what, how did you get to where you are today, I guess, and, and what sort of personal experiences do you have working with people who have suffered through those traumas? So I, you know, I, 
I would say my work with uh, displaced persons and survivors of human trafficking happened super, super serendipitously. I was working at Duke um, at the Kenyan Institute for Ethics. There was a visiting scholar named Fiona Terry who had worked with Doctors Without Borders for many, many years. She had just uh, written a book on the paradox of humanitarian intervention. So all the unintended consequences uh, when individuals, organizations, and countries intervene in situations. Um, and she was a visiting scholar. Uh, she was about my age and had kids my age. And so everybody else said, well, you'll be best friends. Um, and so um, we befriended one another. Uh, we're hanging out. And one day she said to me in the office, she came in. She's like, you know, my husband, who was then in Kathmandu, uh, working with uh, the Red Cross, I uh, heard about Bhutanese refugees in Nepal. And we both kind of looked at each other and thought, well, how can you be a refugee from heaven on earth? And we sort of laughed and said, well, he must be confused. Um, two days later, uh, there was an article in the Durham Herald Sun saying that Bhutanese refugees were being resettled to North Carolina. And I think the two of us just sort of instantly thought, we need to, we need to explore this. We need to understand what's going on. What is this population? Who are they? Uh, and what is the experience uh, going to be like for them after having spent two decades in uh, remote refugee camps in eastern Nepal to suddenly be, be, be plunked down in Durham, North Carolina, and many other places in the United States? And so I think it was this super um, kind of off-the-cuff, this is super interesting an opportunity for us to do something together that really got me started thinking about it. Um, and I think much of my work since that time has been um, about understanding um, how policies and approaches to radical displacement can be made more humane, more merciful, uh, and enable people to develop a meaningful life uh, by actually asking people affected by it. And I know that sounds like a trivial, simple thing to do, but what was interesting is at the time when I started this work about 15 years ago, um, there was really limited conversation with those most affected. And so all of my work um, and my work with other faculty, with students, graduate students, has always used something called a life story method where I ask people five questions about their life. Um, what's a typical day? Uh, what are the most meaningful events in your life? Describe your family, friends, social networks. Uh, describe your health and well-being. Describe your um, sense of religion, values, spirituality. And then I end by, if your life were a book, what would its title be? Uh, and these are totally open-ended, semi-therapeutic interviews where the person um, having conversation with gets to direct where the story goes. Uh, I never ask a person about traumatic experiences. Um, I never question people's facts. Um, this is not my investigation of truth. It's my way of trying to understand stories people tell after horrific events in their life as a way that they survive moving forward, right? And 
victims of trauma tell stories that enable them to make it through the day and day after day after day. And so stories may include horrific um, events that neither you and I could ever fathom, but oftentimes they're also stories, right? They're love stories. They're funny stories. They're stories of uh, when couples met, when people had their first child, uh, when they fell out of a tree goofing around. They're, you know, stories like anyone else might tell about their life. And the stories give them an opportunity to reflect on their life that includes trauma, but also includes happy moments, includes challenging moments. And then for us, what we try to do is understand within that broader narrative and those stories which can last between two and 11 hours, some people talk on and on and on, um, is to understand what their challenges are without getting them to deep dive um, and tell a story that may be hard for them to tell. If someone wants to tell a story of being game raped, I am more than willing to listen to it. Um, if they want to simply imply they were gang raped, that's fine too. Uh, if they want to leave it out of their story altogether, I'm happy with that as well. Um, that it, this isn't about fact finding. It's, it's about a moment where they can reflect on their humanity and feel good about it. Um, so, you know, with, with this kind of data, um, what I try to understand are places where uh, policies uh, can intervene uh, to enable people who've had these experiences to thrive. Um, and so, you know, in thinking about displacement, and as we were talking about this relationship between kind of initial trauma and the trauma of like massive, massive daily ambiguity it is one that comes really clear. Um, that pe people have an extraordinary ability to survive um, trauma, but being warehoused in a camp for decades is corrosive every minute of every day of every year. And that creates another set of conditions that require a different kind of intervention um, in terms of mental health, in terms of supports. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why there's a real big push internationally to ensure that folks who are displaced in the long term have access to some form of meaningful work, some form of educational opportunities. So you're not just languishing, um, festering old wounds and worrying about the future. At APP, we believe the only way to truly end for-profit prisons in the United States is to challenge the constitutionality of private for-profit prisons in the courts. And with your help and moral courage, we will succeed. Completely donor-funded, we ask for your support. Your tax-deductible contribution will provide vital funding for building the infrastructure necessary to win a fight of this scale. And every dollar will bring us one step closer to our goal of abolishing private prisons. Please join the fight today by visiting abolishprivateprisons.org and click the donate button at the top of the site. And of course, like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells Podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion.
really, really fascinating. So it sounds to me that this the interview process itself is both a means and an end, right? You have like the it's therapeutic almost just by itself for the person to put into words what their own experience is. It allows them to frame what their identity is now as this person who's been displaced, sort of reconcile that with what has happened to them previously to lead them to where they are and allows them to sort of project forward and and see what is my life going to be like. So in that way, it's like an end in itself. But it also sounds like you're saying you you can collect a lot of these very individualized stories and use that to tailor policy that's actually helpful to the people who are giving the stories. Is that right? Yeah. So I think that um, absolutely there is a restorative dimension. These are restorative narratives. I think, um, you know, if you think of your own experiences, um, right, we tell different stories about them over time to enable us to feel okay about them. And I think that's partly what's going on. I think in the aggregate, having done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, we're able to identify patterns that then have policy implications. And one of those policy implications is this relationship between uh, initial trauma and ongoing uh, trauma due to right, lack of information, lack of understanding, lack of ability to lead a meaningful life, uh, the kind of absence of human dignity uh, that we all rely on to enable us to get up in the morning. Sure. And have uh, you that found was, that, that was a that was a point in a hi, Suzanne. Uh, hi there, Suzanne. Uh, that was something that I kind of wanted to jump in here and ask, and you know, like through through my own, I guess, childhood trauma, um, I developed um, certain coping skills that I thought have been extremely effective in my adult life. Uh, the, the way that I framed them, um, in in like. In, in your experiences, do you see that, um, I, actually I would say like what split would you say where people have like adapted those experiences to like uh, like positive coping skills as they've gotten older? So uh, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think right with the case of, um, I think the older someone is, I think the more effective the strategies become. I think when oftentimes when people are super young, the strategies that enable them to survive the kind of, you know, horrific trauma they're experiencing are, are ones that cut them off from kind of reality, cut them off from, uh, you know, the, the kind of institutions that would enable them to would provide support with them or something like that. Does that make sense? I, I, I think there is, in both cases, this really important uh, process of a narrative that enables a person to, um, to kind of see the trauma, uh, understand right, sort of this space of uh, being a victim, but then also embracing their survival moving forward as a really empowering element of who they are moving forward. Uh, but I do think oftentimes, right, for young people, it means they're, they're apprehensive about 
uh, seeking medical care when they need it when they're older or uh, seeking resources that are readily available because they have apprehensive uh, kind of, you know, they've internalized um, a kind of fear of institutions, uh, disappointment with institutions that can be really challenging. Whereas oftentimes adults will have sort of a, a previous institutional experience that they can return to once they have a sense of restoration in themselves. Suzanne, you're, you, you obviously are interacting directly with people who are the subject of forced relocation, presumably also uh, people who are caught up in the sex trafficking trade. Would you please talk a little bit more about your own personal journey um, into this world? And then secondly, have you found that your own life has been enriched by these personal interactions? Yeah, so, so um, you know, I, um, as I said, I, I jumped into this work somewhat uh, spontaneously, um, it's, and really kind of in a nerdy way, to be honest. So I, I thought like, oh my goodness, this is like, as a social scientist, this is like an awesome research opportunity to understand how people are thinking prior to being relocated to the United States, how they're thinking about uh, what justice, equity, fairness are in the world, and then how that's transformed when they arrive. Um, how their sense of what the dimensions of well-being look like when they're still in refugee camps and how that changes when they come to a place in the United States. And so for me, I, I have to say, like, super nerdy, super social science-y, before and after, a classic study. Um, and, and I think it was really my first conversation um, in a Bhutanese refugee camp um, there were previously 10 camps uh, in eastern Nepal, and I was in a camp called Beldangi too. And I was having a conversation um, with a woman who had attempted suicide. And, and it, was, it was not clear immediately the cause of that. And I, I realized that there was concern about suicide across the camps because there was a fairly high rate of suicide in the Bhutanese refugee camps, but there was very little direct conversation with folks who had attempted suicide or their families. Um, and I was overwhelmed by her openness um, that I asked her questions um, that were just about how she was thinking to describe her life. And the sort of floodgates opened, and I, I think this is the, the most extraordinary thing about this kind of work is that there's a moment in that conversation of the deepest, most profound kind of human connection I've ever experienced, right? Here I am, this like white woman from North Carolina, parachuting in to do research, speaking to a woman who's been in a Bhutanese refugee camp for two decades, 
Our lives have nothing in common. And yet, as she shares her story, and her grandchildren are running around, and there's a chicken, uh, like, coming there, and they're trying to serve me tang, and she's narrating the story, the most unbelievable human connection is, is forged. And I think for me, it's that moment that has led me to continually do this work, that it's a moment that I recognize and it's a moment that she recognized that we were connected in some profound way. And we shared something that neither of us would have seen or understood before. Um, and I think, you know, sort of overwhelmingly, my research includes undergraduate students and graduate students. And part of my objective in this work is to allow them to see those human connections with people that it seems so foreign, so distant, so other to them, and know that we have a common journey to take together. Um, and for the students to understand that that is a forward-moving obligation uh, forged in that connection for them to do something about the suffering of that woman and other women like her in the camp. And so I think for me, that's sort of how I got into it and why it's so important. I also, you know, I'd say I keep the, the, the nerdy dimension is really still very much a part of how I think about this work in that um, I think there are spaces, especially around trafficking, um, sex trafficking in particular, um, but also refugee spaces where the, the most obvious answer, uh, the commonsensical answer, is just not what's going on. And, um, you know, I think it's, we, we need to interrogate the assumptions we're making about people, but that has to be their voice, not ours, right? I think in a lot of these situations, um, Policymakers, right? People who are super, super well-meaning are the voice of the person in the situation, and we need to hear more directly from them to to understand. So we stop this kind of intervening in ways that's not what people want, what they hope for, and what they need. Wow! I, so I got so a question that I have would be. Um, in your in your efforts to um, you know gather this information um, and and look at you know you know what makes these situations go on, what's the largest example of like pushback from or, or, or have you ever had any pushback from any establishment um, while you were seeking to just find out the impact um, things have had on people? So I, I guess I haven't had a whole lot of pushback on the impact, right, sort of on the interrogation of the questions or engagement with the issues. Um, I think like, like, and this is going to sound somewhat strange, I think where I get the greatest impact is in a kind of a bureaucratic sense of helplessness, 
right? I, and I don't know okay. if that makes sense. And no, so let me just no, give you a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> let me give you like a totally random example. So, um, done a whole lot of work in the North Carolina community uh, with newcomers, overwhelmingly refugees from Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Congo, really all over. Durham is, a, is really a hub of resettlement. And, um, you know, sort of there was a period where lots and lots of folks were coming to Durham, uh, families, had kids who'd never actually been in school. Um, and so you have 15, 16, 17-year-olds plunked into a Durham public high school, um, having children in Dur Durham public schools myself, not the funnest place, uh, certainly a hard environment to jump into when you don't speak the language. Um, and so they would be in Durham public schools. Um, Durham public schools requires every student to take the ACT. They have some financial arrangement with the organization. So they all take it. Um, as do the newcomer students. Um, there were a small proportion of newcomer students who had been to school and who were actually very good students, despite the fact they didn't speak English. Um, they were be required to take the ACT um, and would do abysmally, which would make it very hard then as they thought about transitioning uh, to, to third level, to college, etc., right? Because they have you know, a five. Um, and they're very smart, very accomplished, but they have a five. Um, turns out that if English is not your native language, you are entitled to time and a half. But time and a half requires somebody to fill out a form. Form takes 10 minutes. Well, we don't know who fills out the form. And nobody can figure out how to fill out the form. Same thing, right? Right, many sort of newcomers come in and they excel in mathematics because there's not a lot of English. Um, take the ACT, you actually need a calculator to do well on the ACT. They're sending the newcomer kids in who don't have a calculator to take the ACT. There is a room somewhere in Durham with lots and lots of calculators. Where is the room? How do we figure out how to get calculators from room? to the students, right? And it's right. that sort of like bizarre, like, right? Why does it take 30 days to get people onto free lunch? What are they supposed to do for the first 29? Right, right. right. Who, yeah. created this, right who created the 30 day rule? Uh, wow. And it's just like these bizarre little things where you have a conversation and everybody's well-meaning, uh, everybody's caring, but there's just this befuddlement on how to do really, really basic things. And I would say that's, that's been my biggest frustration, how well-meaning, thoughtful people can continue to right, undermine the well-being of so many with incompetence and helplessness. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, as, a, as a person who's worked... Uh, played in the NFL and now I work at the NFL creating resources for the players. It seems like the lowest hanging fruit, the most simple things uh, they almost uh, purposely overlook or don't do. So uh, I'm, I'm completely with you there. I wonder, I wonder if either of you guys has a thought about why that is. I mean, one of the issues that John and I have dealt with is like getting people to care enough to do something right? Like 
we have this problem that when we explain the problem to people for the first time, that is making profit off of somebody who doesn't have a choice in the matter because they're sent to a private prison facility or all of the other ways that value is extracted from this person when they're in the criminal justice system, almost universally, you know, there's some outliers, but almost universally, people understand that it's a problem. They like, they get the moral issue with the extraction of value from another human being. But there seems to be this additional step, which is like, well, maybe it's even two steps now that I'm saying it out loud. There's a step like to go from the the moral idea of admitting it's wrong to caring about the person. And then even once you care about the person, you have to meet some threshold level of caring to do something about it, to like, to actually, okay, I'm just going to go figure out where that room with calculators is and pay somebody $10 an hour to like hand them out to somebody or something. You know, I wonder if, if there's like, if, if you have thoughts about why there that, that final step is, or if there's solutions to get people to like make that final leap. So I, you know, I think you, for, from my perspective, you've described this really well. I think most people, like when you identify their problem, they're like, oh yeah, right? Like it's a problem in North Carolina. They don't teach primary literacy uh, for folks. So if you're in high school and haven't never learned to read in, right, in Rwanda, you're not going to learn English. Oops. Uh, right? Like that just seems bizarre. Everybody knows it's bizarre. Everybody wants to be supportive, right? But I think like being able to identify a moral problem and doing something about it are two fundamentally different things, right? You know, and this is a, this is true of any moral question, right? P people know what's right and wrong by and large. They still do bad things all the time, right? And so how do we get people to, um, to understand that, right, not allowing a significant portion of a high school population to learn to read is actually their responsibility. Um, and I, I'm not sure how one does that. Um, I think, you know, sort of my strategy is a whole lot of pestering, but, um, I, but that's right. That's totally ineffective. Um, I think, it's really easy to take those things that, you know, it's like your email, the emails that are going to require some thought, you don't answer immediately. And then it's like a week later and you're like, Oh no, I got to answer that. I don't really know what to say. It's another week. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of that going on. Like, you know, sort of the person you're talking to is like, yeah, there's a room with calculators. Who knows where the room is? Like, who do I call to ask? Um, and that's where I think people allow their lack of knowledge and lack of understanding to be an excuse for moral action. Um, and I, I think that's right. As you talk about private prisons or you talk about the treatment of newcomers or right, everything in public schooling, there's a whole lot of excusing of one's lack of moral action, I would say. Um, and that's a pretty pervasive phenomenon. Yeah, it's a, uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the difference between like a moral action and a, like a moral inaction and whether there's like moral blame to us to be assigned if somebody could easily do something moral and, and chooses not to. 
right? It's it's like a it's persistent human problem that I think you know. Right, and I think you know, sort of. Um, I'm a huge Hannah Arendt fan. Um, you know, sort of the post-war political theorist, and she, you know, sort of one of my favorite quotes in her work is essentially the line that. Um, you know, the sad truth, this I'm paraphrasing, the sad truth is um, that most evil is done by people who never uh, decide whether they're going to be good or evil, right? And I think one of the greatest evils, right, if we want to use that term, is the, are, are the people who just let it drop to the bottom of their email queue or who say, oh, it's too hard for me to figure it out or who just walk on by. Right. That, yeah. And I, you know, sort of, I realize that every human, not every human being can address every evil. Um, but I think we need to, in our daily life, have an approach that's, yeah, we're going to be a whole lot more self-conscious about engaging in these things in a very routine way. I think I'm going to not get the quote exactly right, but I think it was Martin Luther King who said like the, one of the greatest impediments to civil rights is the white moderate who just like, it's that same issue. The people that are like content to go about their daily lives without confronting serious injustices in the world are the biggest impediment just because they're a huge block of people who are just choosing not to engage. Right. And they think that by having a moral perspective, they're right. They've done their duty, right? Their yeah. work is over. Totally. They've had, right, they've made the comment. They can move on. Right. It's a slacktivism is the new, uh, the new <laughs> word that we've talked about, like, you know, Twitter activism or something. I sent out, I changed my, uh, changed my avatar to a Ukraine flag and I've like I've <laughs> accomplished something this week. <laughs> Suzanne, I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit about what's going on with the Center for Social Concerns. Um, it, I see a parallel between the kind of work you were doing with refugees and trafficking victims. So you, you have people who are forcibly relocated into a different culture in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, someone in Vermont may be sent to Tallahatchie or a private prison, for example, maybe a violent culture is where they're going for the next number of years. And then they're going to return a changed person, potentially with, with PTSD. I wonder, if, first of all, if you see a parallel between the needs of people in those circumstances and the people you were working with in the refugee and sex trafficking circumstances. And secondly, how is the Center for Social Concerns at Notre Dame addressing that circumstance? So um, I, I would say absolutely, right? It, that um, while we think about um, refugee camps or we think about uh, detention facilities for um, survivals of child sex trafficking, Right. These these are very much um, in keeping with the model of prisons, right? And the kinds of uh, dehumanization and experience and dis right, right sort of um, 
separation, disorientation are, are very, very much the same. I think um, at the Center for Social Concerns, uh, I've been here nine months. Uh, honestly, I'm still drinking through the fire hose. Um, I feel like a freshman in college trying to figure out everything and anything I can. Um, and so I, I think where, you know, sort of the Center for Social Concerns has perhaps more, you know, sort of over time had a more heavier foot is looking at the space of mass incarceration, um, working with newcomers um, and refugee populations while part of my work and, and ongoing work hasn't been a real uh, centerpiece yet, and I, I hope it might become one of the work here. I think that, um, you know, when you, and you would know this, that the Center for Social Concerns has been engaged with a number of um, prison education programs uh, here in Indiana, working with Westville Prison. Uh, two in particular of note, uh, one is the Inside Out program, which um, offers classes for Notre Dame students and um, sort of inmates at Westville to simultaneously take a class together. Uh, the other is the um, Moreau Initiative, which is an opportunity for uh, inmates to take liberal arts classes and get college credit through Holy Cross College down the road. Um, I had the opportunity to sort of sit in on uh, the final class of Inside Out um, this spring. And I think for me, you know, I described this connection in doing an in-depth interview, a life story interview uh, with someone who's, who's a survivor of trafficking or um, a refugee. And there's this intense like moment of humanity. And I think that's really what I saw in, in amongst the Notre Dame students and their fellow classmates who happen to be on the inside. Um, and I think it, right, it is an extraordinary learning opportunity for, for both parties um, to think differently about the world. They work on group projects together and, and try to address a particular community-based social issue. And I think the coming together of those perspectives, right, is is just a space of tremendous humanity, but also offering, I think, really specific and concrete ways to, to move forward. Um, I, I think for us, you know, broadly conceived, we're about responding to the demands of justice. Um, I think mass incarceration is really a focal point for the kind of work we hope to do moving forward. Uh, also thinking about doing work in labor, work in poverty, uh, and potentially also in migration space. There are many ways to get involved with the Prison Cells podcast, build your moral courage, and help us eradicate for-profit prisons in the U.S. Visit abolishprivateprisons.org today and build the momentum of abolishing private prisons by working with an organization to pass a resolution in support of the cause. Get to know the ins and outs of how private prisons operate and why. Outside of the site, you can write your congressperson and shed light on this awful practice. As always, please like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells Podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. I think before we move on from the Center for Social Concerns at Abolish Private Prisons, through through the connection 
with the center and with John, we've been very lucky. We got uh, not through the center itself, but from people that we've met through there, a, a really great amicus brief in the case that we filed in Arizona from the perspective of sort of a, an ethical uh, mindset in the into the private prison industry and also some business ethics, which is an interesting perspective that we hadn't talked about before. And we also got the opportunity to work with some students inside of a facility um, and work with them on some projects to help abolish private prisons and at the same time, let them develop some practical skills in, in terms of marketing and uh, sort of re, uh, re-sifting through some articles, uh, academic articles and law review articles and make them more consumable. So that, that's an ongoing project that we're, that we're really happy to work with. And I, and I right. think that's a cool way for the CSC to like facilitate those kinds of opportunities. Great. Oh, I'm so glad to hear. And I, I have like a self-indulgent nerdy question while we're on the topic <laughs> that's sort of been floating and formulating around in my mind since you brought it up. Uh, the, the short question is, do you think your classics background informed your work? And you can feel free to tell me that any of my premises are wrong here. But it seems to me that the way that a, a classics study works is you're reaching through this barrier and, and using stories to learn about civilizations and groups of people that are very different from your own. And I wonder if that like focus on storytelling, which may be a flawed premise, but that's my understanding of it, has, has maybe informed the way that you have made this connection. You go and talk to people and let them tell stories in a way that sounds like this oral tradition that, that was you know, from an ancient society, and then use that to make this human connection which strikes me as something that's very similar to what's going on when we study the classics. And I wonder if you've ever, you know, directly made that connection before, if it's something that you explicitly thought about or how that's informed your work. Yeah. So it's, it's funny. Um, this is such a great question and such a interesting way to think about it. Um, and it, it, in certain ways it really resonates with how I think about things in general. So I'm, yeah, I'm a huge, huge consumer of fiction. Um, some might say a compulsive consumer of fiction. Um, you know, everything from, you know, sort of your uh, contemporary beach novel to the classics uh, in literature. And I think for me, the classics, right, classics inform my thinking in two ways. Um, one has to do with the way... Um, story informs how I see the world, um, that it is, it is both through conversations and the, the, the sharing of stories in my research, um, that informs how I think analytically, but it's also how, um, literature and, um, story, it, it's, that's always a piece of how I'm trying, how I'm understanding all that data and all those stories together, right? They create this kind of intersection um, in my thinking. I think that um, in both in both ways, just in daily life, uh, there are lines from literature, there are lines from an interview when I'm in the supermarket and something weird happens that I kind of recall together to guide me through the strange, random, weird interaction that I don't know what to do about. Um, and I think they become 
sort of this archive of understanding and experience that just it enables me and moves me forward just as a human being, as a parent, as a neighbor. Um, I think the other piece in terms of drawing on classics, you know, it's sort of, I, I think the way I think about the world is very Aristotelian. Uh, I, I think about virtue all the time, right? I think about what it means to be a good person and how do I deliberatively get up every day and, tr and try to enact being a good person? And what are the places that I need to do better on uh, and work on? But I also think about what it means to be, right, what it means to have a good life and what it means to contribute to the common good. And I think all of that for me is really based in a strong Aristotelian tradition that, that tells me, right, having a good life Right, being, um, you know, sort of working in defense of the common good, being a good person is a matter of practice. You've got to do it to get good at it. And um, it's not something that I can just turn on and say, oh, I'll be good today. Right, I have to practice it and I have to know what to do in situations that tell me to move beyond the moral ambivalence. To, to actually go and find the closet uh, and distribute the calculators myself if I have to, right? That that's sort of what both of those push me to do. So it's sort of a mix of this kind of Aristotle foundation and then this kind of literature together with these narratives that I kind of that kind of guide me, um, you know, sort of. But, right, there are so many, especially from the interviews, um, lines that, right, are just sort of imprinted on my soul, the way people have understood their human existence, that I borrow and I treasure and enable me to do whatever it is I'm going to do every day. I, I think left to my own devices, there's a real danger in this turning into a philosophy podcast. I see that. <laughs> John is leaning forward, and I hope he's got a, a more practical question to bring us back, because that, that is so interesting to me. So hopefully John can pull us back in a little bit. Uh, you never know. Um, Suzanne, um, we have focused in part on the profit element, the private profit element, which in criminal justice, we see the profit incentive to incarcerate or to keep people's lives forever entangled in the criminal justice system as not just a legal or constitutional issue, but, but also one of morality and ethics. Um, based on what you've seen, on perhaps a much bigger scale, I don't even know if the public understands how big an issue this refugee circumstance is. Do you, what is it that keeps you going? It, it would be so easy to look at this and think this is all way too big for me or for even the group of people I'm working with to change. Um, what keeps you going? So, um, you know, I, I think there have been um, many moments 
in many moments in, in conversation with colleagues in this space and students where the magnitude, right? So more than 90 million people are displaced persons globally. Um, that, uh, you know, what can one person do? What can a hundred people do um, to, to address the issues? Um, you know, sort of the, I, I look at what's happening on the U.S. border and just shudder. Um, to right and the intractable nature of that conversation and its visceral qualities and right and yet 51 people died in the back of a truck just recently right so there there's this weird um, kind of almost moment of helplessness that I, f- I frequently confront like what is it I can do or anybody can do um, I, I think over time, I, and I've come to this way of thinking that if a single person has a single better day because of something I did, then I'm good, right? And because that single good day that that mother has, she brings that home to her kids and they have a good day too, right? And that good day, right, can last a week. Um, and right, and can be something that's built upon, right? And so I think like a lot of people, I was like, I'm going to fix it and everything will be great. I think um, what I've realized is, right, I need to come alongside it um, and to chip away at it. Um, and so literally uh, one person, one day, and it's good, I can work from there. Um, and I can do that one person at a time. Right, one person who has an opportunity they didn't have before, right, creates a ripple effect in a community um, that can be extraordinary. Um, and to worry less about, okay, today I'm going to fix it. Um, that doesn't mean I don't think somebody's got to do something really dramatic at the U.S. border. And so, for example, perhaps taking the stories of a number of people in these private for profit immigration detention centers yep. at the borders. Yeah. And working that geometrically into much larger policy work. Right. Um, and so how do you take the individual and aggregate it up? So I this this may be a, a nice transition to how we try to wrap these things up, which is a call to action in some sense. I mean, if if somebody was listening today and they were inspired to find a room of calculators on their own, you know, <laughs> metaphorically, is there uh, an NGO or a nonprofit that you've worked with that you think is doing exemplary work that that an individual could say, I am going to do something today to make one person's life better? Are there places that you would recommend that people turn to? Is there like a list of something that are that are doing good work? Like what what can people do if they wanted to get involved today? So I, I think in the context of the United, right, the context of the United States with the kind of resettled refugee population, I think people should start uh, in their neighborhood school, uh, with their school board, with their superintendent's office, right? I think one of the things that I have realized is um, those refugee kids who aren't getting the calculators, there are a whole lot of other kids who, who can't afford a calculator. And so... 
I think um, starting in your backyard, in your neighborhood school, um, right, refugees, uh, people whose uh, low resource conditions make education harder to access, harder to appreciate, harder to be successful at, are in everybody's backyard. Um, I'd also say when we look at a question like domestic child sex trafficking, um, this, this is one where I say, wake up, right? There are at least 3 million children trafficked annually. Um, if you, right on this call right now, there are six people and one of us knows someone who's being trafficked, um, that we need to be paying much, much better attention. And I realize this isn't a number to call. This isn't right. An organization to team up with, but I think it's really, it's about wake up, um, and start paying attention to what's around you because you're going to start to see something that is beyond horrific. Um, in terms of right organizations, yeah, I, I could, yeah, a list of lots and lots and lots of organizations, um, right? I think most of the organizations that resettle in the United States, right, whether it's um, USCRI, World Relief, Church World Services, I think folks are Catholic Relief Services, they're all really well-meaning people who are trying to step up on these things. I, I think the sort of situation at the border um, requires really legislative advocacy in a big way, um, that we can sit on our hands the way we are as people are dying is just, yeah, it's just barbaric. All right. We will include a link to some of those. And Suzanne, if you have any particular ones, we can include them in the show notes because I think people really do like to just click on something because it, you know, that first step is often the hardest. Um, Tank, John, Allie, do you guys have any further questions? Or Suzanne, if you have anything that you want to add that we didn't ask a question about, now's the time. No, no, thank you. No, thank you very much. Uh, was I feel very informed. <laughs> well, great. Thanks so much, Suzanne, for joining us. Well, thank you all. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for everybody for listening. And as usual, you know the the drill by now. Spread the story to more people by telling your friends about it. Get one more listen to the podcast. That's one more person that's, you know, aware of these very important issues. Leave a a review. Leave a rating. It really does help the algorithm. And uh, thanks so much for joining Prison Cells. We'll talk to you next week. Mm